Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Sometimes it may seem as if you are not making a meaningful impact. Your daily routine feels unimportant, especially with everything happening in the world. You wonder if you could do more with the life that God has given you. Someone once wrote, He does the most for God's great world who does the best in his own little world. All around you are people who could be wonderfully affected by your help and kindness. God asks you to have an impact on the world by loving them as He loves them. The most meaningful work you can do is to care for the people around you. Will you do it? Here in the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Blair inspires us to move out into the world around us to be an effective force of God's love. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for taking the time to share with us your thoughts about living the gospel and making a genuine impact on the people in the world around us. How are you today? Very well, thank you. I understand you just got back from Rome. How was your trip? Well, it was fine. Uh, you know, I went not uh, on my own, but as the chairman of the United States Bishops Committee on the uh, Conference Committee on the Liturgy, because we are in the final stages of putting together a, a, re a revised edition of the Liturgy of the Hours. That is to say, the public prayer of the church uh, that would be you know, morning and evening prayer, office of readings, daytime prayer, those things, yeah. that uh, every cleric, priest and deacon, makes a promise to pray faithfully every day, uh, and that our lay people are encouraged very much to participate when they can in offering this prayer. And so um, I went to Rome because I needed to meet with the um, uh, Cardinal Roach and his staff in the congregation for a divine worship uh, to talk about some of these elements so that we and the Holy See are on the same page because uh, they have to approve uh, some of the things we're doing. And I want, the conference wanted to be sure that everything is going smoothly with them. So, yes, I did go. And uh, it was, uh, we had a very positive, good meeting. Uh, it was a chance to uh, see Rome after not having been there since before COVID. And I must tell you that Rome was uh, packed with tourists. Really? People really do want to travel again. Um after two, even, after two and a half years of not traveling, huh? Yes, I even uh, wore a mask sometimes on the street in Rome where it was when it was really crowded, but most of the time not. Uh, and uh, I stayed at the North American College, our alma mater, uh, this the seminary in Rome for American uh, students. And um, the new rector, Monsignor Powers, was installed. And happily, Monsignor Powers is from uh, Connecticut. He's a priest of the Bridgeport Diocese. So that was a very happy occasion. The weather was very nice, except for one day when it rained a bit. But otherwise, it was a very uh, happy trip. I didn't go to a papal audience this time on Wednesday, but uh, I did go to St. Peter's, and I prayed at the tomb of St. Peter. I prayed at the, the tomb of Pope St. John Paul. I went to the uh, church, the Chiesa Nuova Church, and prayed at the tomb of St. Philip Neri. And I also went to St. Mary Major Basilica, and I prayed at the tomb of Pope St. Pius V. 
you know, I don't think we, unless you read history, you don't necessarily appreciate just how pivotal and uh, extraordinary a figure Pope St. Pius V was at the time of the Reformation and the implementation of the Council of Trent. He was a remarkable man and a great uh, leader. And so I stopped and said a prayer there as well. So you see, I made my rounds of the saints. When I go to Rome, I don't just visit the living. I also visit the dead. Well, uh, without getting too personal, can I ask you if you prayed for the people of the Archdiocese of Hartford in all of these prayers and places that you prayed at? Well, that's not a personal question at all. That's absolutely. I always am commending uh, our local church and my ministry uh, to the intercession of all of these people. I pray for the whole church, but I always am praying for the Archdiocese of Hartford, always. We count on that. Thank you, Archbishop. By the way, before you go on, I did have some very good food when I was in Rome. I'm going to ask you about that in just a second, so if you hold on to that. I know. Sorry. Here I am rushing you. (laughs) Okay. So one of the celebrations that's coming up is the celebration of the Ghanaian community being in the Archdiocese for 25 years. You want to speak about that celebration coming up? Yes. You know, we are an immigrant church in the United States. There are very few Native American uh, Roman Catholics uh, in our archdiocese. I hope that there are some, uh, but uh, all of us are immigrant uh, Catholics. And uh, we have to remember that even at a time of the diminished practice of the faith in our part of the world, not just the archdiocese, but New England and other places as well, you know, we we witness all of this um, reduction, you know, the pastoral planning that sadly has to recognize the fact that the world that we once had no longer exists and that we need to consolidate our efforts and be brought together in a community that's smaller than it once was, or at Mm -hmm. least is in different locations than it once was. But we also have to remember that there are new uh, immigrant uh, groups, Catholics, in our our diocese. And those uh, African Catholics from Ghana, from the country of Ghana, have a significant community and uh, they g- gather uh, for, for Mass in a church designated for them in East Hartford. And they uh, are celebrating 25 years here. Their hope is to be, we call it canonically in church law, a quasi-parish. That is to say, it's like a parish, but it doesn't have a full parish status. But this is a very a joyful thing. We also have a, a similar kind of quasi-parish for the Vietnamese Catholics, for the Korean Catholics, I'm trying to think if I'm forgetting any because we, uh, there, there are there are other well there are other ethnic groups too that but they don't necessarily uh, come together as a as a quasi parish, but anyway uh, there's a great diversity of our Catholic people in the Archdiocese of Hartford and we should appreciate that you know I was just noticing in the in the news that in Connecticut we have the highest percentage of Puerto Ricans uh, mm-hmm. of any other state. So, you know, we we need to be very attentive to the universality of the church and above all to realize that we're all part of one family of faith. I know I, I use that expression a lot. That yes, people are different. You know, we have our traditional Italian Catholics and Polish Catholics and every other kind. But altogether, uh, we are one family of faith. And, you know, years ago, sometimes there were churches a block apart because uh, of the ethnic diversity. In our country today, while we continue to respect very much the traditions and the history and the identity of people's ethnicities uh, historically, we also have to always appreciate the bigger picture. 
and even getting back to going to Rome, you know, when you go, you know yourself, of all people, from your pilgrimages and from your time in Rome, you go to St. Peter's Square for an audience or papal mass, and there's a great joy in the fact that there are people from everywhere uh, that come Absolutely. together in, in our Catholic faith. And, the and joy. that's something we need to celebrate not just in Rome, but we need to celebrate it in Connecticut, too. And I was just going to say, the joy is celebrated by the Holy Father himself, pointing out all those diverse groups from various countries throughout the world coming to coming to Rome to celebrate faith, huh? Yes. You just celebrated wedding anniversaries in the Archdiocese of Hartford. Do you remember how many families, how many uh, couples were celebrating their anniversaries at the cathedral with you? Yes, I do. And this is a a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it was a very joyful occasion. We had absolutely magnificent uh, music, the cathedral choir, Doctors Ezekiel Menendez and the choir did a fabulous job. But, you know, when I first became Archbishop of Hartford for this annual mass of people celebrating significant wedding anniversaries, the cathedral was almost full. And every year, as our practicing Catholic population goes down, uh, there were few, there are slightly fewer. But this year, there were only 70 couples that mm-hmm. came to the cathedral for the wedding anniversary mass. And this was something to talk about and, and ponder, you know. And I think it's partly because a lot of our Catholic people, especially older ones, may still be hesitant about uh, coming out uh, to mass. Because of COVID. Because of the, you know, COVID. Yeah. I hope that it's not because uh, people in general just don't want to go to church anymore because that's still a nagging reality, not only for us in Hartford Archdiocese, but elsewhere too. It's taking some doing to get people to appreciate the fact that watching Mass uh, uh, live stream or on TV, with all due respect, of course, for your televised Mass for the Archdiocese, for people who can't get out because of health or, or frailty, that's one thing, and that's a wonderful service that we always want. But for people who are able-bodied, uh, we hope that they uh, will appreciate the fact that you can't receive the body and blood of Christ and you can't be really part of the flock just by sitting on your couch and watching TV if you, you can uh, come to Mass. Just this week, two interesting things came to my attention. One is that one of our parishes, uh, they actually still have the radio receiver that a person can put in their car in the parking lot of the church to hear right. the Mass going on in the church building next door. And at communion time, the extraordinary ministers actually come out to the car and give people communion. So they're actually at the Mass, but not at it at the same time. But this is intended for people who have health problems, who who are vulnerable and can't be exposed. Uh, and they say that some of the, the people just cry. They're so happy that they can actually go to church without going inside and receive Holy Communion. Now, that's an extraordinary thing. But on the other hand, I heard a story this week from a priest that startled me. He had his communion calls, uh, you know, which normally are for shut-in people who are sick or whatever to take the Holy Eucharist. And he noticed he had a couple of new names. He didn't think anything of it. One of the homes was a a home with a young uh, family, a, a father and mother, and young teenage kids. And they said, well, we watched the Mass on TV. We thought you could just bring us communion at home. <laughs> and Father was really startled, as I was, to hear this. And he very nicely and patiently sat down with them and talked to them. And they 
to, to make them appreciate that the importance, well, first of all, the impossibility of everybody. I mean, you can have your groceries delivered at home, but you can't just have communion delivered at home for your convenience unless you're, you know, you can't come out. But anyway, I don't mean to to uh, misjudge these poor people. They they had the best of intentions, but I think he succeeded in persuading them to understand that you really need to come to church for Mass, you know? Absolutely, so, yeah. All of these things are going on, you know, and so that we started this by talking about this just 70 couples for the wedding anniversaries, and they were wonderful people. I took a picture with each of them after, very faithful Catholics, you know. We, I, I have to say to all people like that who are listening, please invite your family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, who you know to be Catholic, who may be hesitating about going to church, invite them to come to Mass now, I know that COVID may rear its ugly head again this winter. I don't know. And I don't judge people because some people have a very legitimate fear. But if if the streets of Rome are so packed with tourists and the airplanes and airports are filled and the shopping malls and the theaters and restaurants are filled, you must know that people aren't that afraid to go out. And unless they have some special circumstance, I really hope and pray that they will come back to Mass. Today begins... Pastoral Care Week, Archbishop, a week to honor clergy of all faiths who provide care in congregations and in specialized settings such as hospitals, correctional facilities, mental health systems, the military and counseling centers. How important is pastoral care to the overall mission of the Catholic Church? Well, pastoral care, of course, is everything. The pastor is Christ the Good Shepherd, and priests and religious and deacons and people who volunteer in the parish to help. They're all carrying out the work of Christ. But I would also say that our special uh, debt of gratitude is owed to those clergy, who particularly uh, in uh, healthcare institutions, hospitals and such, are providing the sacraments and pastoral care for the patients. And there too, because we have such a shortage of priests, I want to salute uh, the number of priests we have from other countries who have come here and with the proper authorization of their bishop and me are engaged by the hospitals in order to provide the chaplaincy for, for people who are sick. This is so extremely important and I, 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 I want to salute them and thank them on the occasion of this, this week that you've, you've talked about. On Tuesday of this week, we celebrate World Pasta Day. There's no better way to celebrate than preparing your favorite dish and enjoying the delicious flavors and textures. Did you know that pasta has been around for 5,000 years? 5,000 years. While widespread consumption is documented from the 14th century, it's believed that pasta existed in some form in ancient China and Greece. So this coming Tuesday is World Pasta Day. Last Monday, the 17th, was National Pasta Day which raises this question for me. Now, prior to your studies in Rome, what was your favorite pasta? Well, I see we've come down a notch from the exalted conversation we were having about pastoral care, but... You wanted to, talk, a, about, you wanted to talk about this earlier, and I yes, said, let's wait on, on this. On a lighter note, how did they know that there was pasta 5,000 years ago? Did they find a fossilized spaghetti noodle in I some have cave? No, I have no idea. Uh-huh. Well... Uh, let's just say that everybody has had pasta at some time in life, including us in our tender youth. But until you get to Italy, you there's pasta and then there's pasta. Uh, and uh, we know that the, the Italians know how to do things very well. 
this leads me to believe that your taste in pasta changed from the days prior to being in Italy to after being in Italy. Yes, from having noodles with tomato paste on it to having carbonara. Yes, that was a major shift in my life. Do I infer that carbonara is your favorite pasta? You might say so. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about Friday, because Friday is the feast day of St. Jude, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. And St. Jude is one of the most popular and beloved saints, trusted heavenly intercessor for all those seeking God's assistance, during times of family crises, sickness, trouble, especially when all hope seems to be lost. Why is it, do you know, that St. Jude is the patron saint of lost causes? I don't know. You're stumping me. I don't, I don't, probably I looked it up at one time or another, but I don't, I don't re- remember. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, though, that, that he is the, the saint that we pray to for lost causes, desperate cases of one Well, I would challenge our listeners to go on online and, and, uh, Try to look it up. Well, let's see if we can't do that. for, And maybe for, I'll do the same. For the next show. Good, good idea. Since time is moving us forward, let's talk a little bit about our gospel lesson for this weekend. And our gospel is on this 30th Sunday in Ordinary Time is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. After this gospel is dramatically presented, then we'll talk with you, Archbishop, regarding your thoughts. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Archbishop, what are your thoughts on this gospel? Well, of course, it it is about hypocrisy and and true uh, and and recognizing the truth about the way we are and our need for God, because if you, like the Pharisee, pride yourself on how good you are, and uh, how impeccable your religious credentials are, while looking askance at at uh, people who are sinful, well, that is a kind of pride that is false because. Even the best of us, uh, even the most conscientious of us, can never claim uh, the right uh, to get to heaven or the right uh, to, to uh, God's blessing. But rather, the reality is that however much we may strive and even very successfully to, uh, to live the gospel, we are always ultimately sinners in need of God's mercy. And the tax collector is kind of the poster child here for somebody who is living a style of life that is extortionate and uh, not good, and yet he recognizes that he is sinful, and he confesses it, and of course that would include a, a purpose of amendment to avoid the things that lead him to, to sin, and Jesus is saying that that's, that's really uh, what counts, 
I mean, I always say that in my homilies, you know, Jesus is the Savior. If you don't feel you have anything to be saved from, if you don't feel you need to be redeemed from anything, he can do nothing for you. It's we're all sinners, and we all need God's mercy. Do you think that there's a mixture of both Pharisee and tax collector in all of us? I mean, on the one hand, we think that we're so great, better than the rest, with no great sins. But in the silence of our own hearts, when we can be perfectly honest with ourselves, we know that we are sinners in need of God's mercy. Well, in the abstract, I think that's true. I think the best way to examine our conscience is to see how we look upon people who do bad things or evil things. You know, do we do we write them off as being uh, the enemy that need to be crushed? Or do we recognize in every person, no matter how much they have offended, in fact, in no matter how much they've offended us, are we willing to to recognize, uh, to want the good for them. You know, I'll give you an example. Today, you can say that uh, uh, Mr. Vladimir Putin is kind of the arch uh, fiend, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look at all the horrific, horrible things he's doing to people and the great injustices and, and just, you know, it's crazy. Well, do we pray? We pray for peace in Ukraine. Shouldn't do, Isn't part of that praying for Mr. Putin, that he will have a change of heart? Uh, that's very hard. You know, Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who, who, who persecute you. And that's part of this idea that we, we need to have the heart of Christ uh, when it comes to absolutely everyone. Archbishop, let's move on to some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Natalie from Waterbury says, I now belong to a parish that consists of a number of merged churches. I am surprised at the attire the new people wear to Mass not only the parishioners, but also the lectors and Eucharistic ministers. Isn't there some kind of dress code that should be adhered to, especially when on the altar? Yes, Natalie, I don't know uh, the specifics of your question, obviously, but you might speak uh, nicely to your, I shouldn't have to say nicely, but you should speak to your uh, pastor and inquire about this. I think all of us clergy are kind of caught, because on the one hand, we sometimes see people coming to church in a way that's really not respectful, but the not only re, not respectful of uh, of God, but not respectful of the the other people. But on the other hand, we live in a society today where people have no sense anymore of what is proper or respectful. And if you tr- you know if you try to point that out to them, they can sometimes become very offended because they don't even understand what you're talking about. But it is true that there, you know, you know how our glib society today says the only rule is that there is no, there are no rules. That's the kind of world we we live in, where that's the motto. But uh, I do think that it is important. Of course, our poor priests have so much on their hands today, yeah. trying to uh, provide pastoral care for so many people with with so few, many fewer priests than we've had. Uh, so you you have to give them a little bit of slack here if they don't attend to all of those kinds of things. But I do think your concern is valid, and maybe there's some way that it can be addressed. And um, Patrick from Riverton says, Pope Francis appealed for unity in the Catholic Church last week as he marked the 60th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council. Many Catholics side with the changes that came from Vatican II, but some believe it is too progressive and a break from tradition. 
During his homily, the Pope called for the faithful to act as one, as Christ's flock. He said, let us overcome all polarization and preserve our communion. What are your thoughts on his statement? How can the faithful come together? Well, our faithful, that's all of us, uh, are reflect the society in which we live. But by the same token, our faith challenges us to rise above the world and to find a deeper unity in the person of Christ and the truths of faith that Christ proclaimed. So really, the center of our unity of a church has to be Jesus Christ as he is uh, proclaimed in the gospel and as that gospel is taught and understood authoritatively in the teaching of the church as found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. There you find the truths of the faith that are, are supposed to unite us. So since the Council, there have been uh, tensions. Well, there have always been tensions in the Church, by the way, but uh, how to, to foster this unity. And I would uh, subscribe to uh, a fundamental principle enunciated by uh, Pope Benedict, that between the Council, pre-Council and and post-council, there is, he used a fancy word, the hermeneutic. Hermeneutic means the key to understanding, uh, the hermeneutic of continuity, not discontinuity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extremely important, that the, the, the church after Vatican II is still exactly the same church as before Vatican II, and the same church as at the time of the apostles Peter and Paul. Now, obviously, lived in the circumstances and the state the questions raised by society and life and the world, very different, although the fundamentals are the same. But we have to live by that hermeneutic, by that key of continuity, not discontinuity. And I think, uh, you know, the Pope is a visible source. Christ is the, is the source of unity, but the Pope is a visible source or sign of unity in the church. And so very rightly, Pope Francis is calling upon all of us to be united in our faith. Maureen from Simsbury has a question for you, saying, My grandson's religious education teacher told him that it was liturgically improper to bless yourself with the sign of the cross after receiving communion. I've been doing this since I was young. When did this practice change? Well, I don't think, with all due respect to the religious education teacher, who I'm sure is well-intentioned and thought that he or she was giving good advice, a simple devotional practice like that privately by an individual person after they receive communion, I don't see how that, I don't see that that's improper. Now, if a person makes a big show of it or something or doesn't do the other things that are liturgically called for to receive communion properly, that's different. But if they receive communion according to the norm of the church as it's established today and then discreetly for their own piety make the sign of the cross as they turn away, I don't see any difficulty with that. Just to discreetly make the sign of the cross is fine with me. And let's see if we can't squeeze in one last question, Archbishop, from Lucy from Seymour, who says, What does apostolic tradition mean? I hear those two words used quite often in the Catholic Church. Well, Lucy, you're asking a huge question at the end of the program. (laughs) Uh, But I give a simple answer. First of all, if you... Uh, I think I would recommend that you go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church or the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults and look, uh, read something about this. But remember, the word tradition comes from uh, traditio, to hand on. So it's the faith handed on from the apostles, the apostolic tradition. You know, 
what does St. Paul say about the Eucharist? What I, what I have received, I hand on to you. You know, that this is the faith uh, of the Church. You know, just last week, uh, we celebrated the Feast of St. Ignatius of Antioch, and I read somewhere that if Ignatius was martyred and he was shipped off to Rome where he was killed in the arena, but he wrote several letters on the way that we have. Uh, they're, they're even in the divine office. They're very beautiful, edifying letters. But I think it says that Car- St. John Henry Newman, Cardinal Newman, said that in those, I think it was seven letters, you can find the, the whole of the Catholic faith already ex- expressed. And this is around the year 110, 120, something mm-hmm. like that. So that is the tradition. The apostolic tradition is what's handed on from the apostles. Now, many questions arise over the centuries. You know, we have questions today about things that they didn't have back then, but it all has to be in continuity and in integrity with what we've received. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program, please, with a prayer and a blessing? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of our faith. And as we give thanks for what we have, we pray that we may be heroic witnesses to that faith in the world today that is hurting so much. And we also pray that our brothers and sisters who are still fearful of coming back to church or who have simply fallen out of the habit will be re-inspired by our example and our prayers and your grace to participate fully again in the Holy Eucharist, in the sacramental life with their brothers and sisters. We pray that together we may all be faithful to that apostolic tradition, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit and that presents you, Lord, to us in all that we do. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week, same time. And until then, we wish you a pleasant week. Thank you. You too. Thank you.